Well, welcome again uh, to you, Uptown family, and, and those of you who are visiting us uh, virtually online. Um, we hope that you're finding the, the series of uh, COVID uh, messages encouraging to you as we're all, um, right now, we're, we're staying home to break the curve. We used to stay home to slow the spread. Now we're, we're really trying to, to stay home and, and slow the curve, uh, I mean, to break break the or bend the curve uh, as the phrase is so we hope that you are um, finding peace and comfort um, during uh, during this time and uh, getting closer to your uh, your loved ones and uh, certainly we appreciate those of you who are hopping on the the phone line every evening uh, and joining us uh, during prayer time at at seven o'clock from tuesday through friday so we hope that you're finding uh, all of these messages encouraging. Pastor Mark and I uh, and others, uh, beginning today, we're beginning this series on the letter of Philippians. It's one of those um, uh, letters uh, that helps you to, to find out the, the true perspective that we all need to have uh, during this time. And so speaking of perspective, uh, I'd like to introduce a video. Uh, last week I had mentioned that the work of Southern Baptists don't stop uh, during this uh, uh, virus pandemic. Our work goes on with the, uh, the, f- uh, the 5,000 uh, international missionaries, the 50,000 local churches, the 5,000 Uh, North American missions, and this uh, gives you a perspective uh, of the way that we are all uh, chipping in to advance the gospel uh, in this time. There's irony to be found in our feelings of loneliness, It's that we all know those feelings, each and every one of us. We all have felt alone at some point when our ideas are not welcome among strangers, at some place when we are many miles from home where no one and nothing is familiar, at some time when disaster strikes and you don't know how to begin to help. If only someone was with you in these dark, lonely hours, a person who cares, people who champion you and your cause, If only your family was near, your feelings of isolation, of loneliness, would disappear. Forty-six thousand four hundred eighty-four Southern Baptist churches are praying for you. You are not alone. They are supporting your efforts, hearing your updates on Sunday mornings, reading your stories in small group, smiling, crying, hoping, living through your work. No matter how far away, outnumbered, or overwhelmed you may be, know this. The entire Southern Baptist family is there with you, next to you, behind you every step of the way. You are not alone. So I hope uh, you get a good perspective there of the work that all of our, 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 our churches 
uh, do uh, throughout the year as we reach into our communities of need, uh, of color, uh, to share the gospel uh, in every place and every way, uh, certainly in every way uh, during this time as we're all uh, staying at home and, and doing these uh, virtual services online. Again, uh, Pastor Mark and I uh, are beginning a series of, uh, uh, of messages on the letter of Philippians. The theme uh, for, this, for this letter you will find is that our peace, our joy uh, are not based on our circumstances, but it's based on a, having a proper spiritual outlook on things, okay? Uh, suffering will come, and suffering is here. For so many folks, we just learned uh, again on Friday that uh, you know Illinois uh, or uh, Illinois hit another high mark uh, of 30,000 uh, positive COVID ca uh, cases. So suffering's going to come, uh, but through faith, uh, through faith, we can meet uh, our we can meet our trials, we can meet our suffering uh, with peace and joy. And you've got to think that we're crazy when we say you can meet <laughs> suffering with peace and joy. So uh, that's, the, that's the theme, the overall underlying theme of the letter of Philippians. It is written by the Apostle Paul. Now, we know a little bit about Paul's background uh, from the book of Acts. Uh, it first calls him Saul. That's his Hebrew name. Uh, perhaps uh, he was named after Israel's first king, who also came from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, Saul was extremely proud of his Jewish heritage, and he would protect that heritage at any cost. Um, Saul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He would describe himself in this letter. Uh, he persecuted Christians before the Lord met him on the road to Damascus. Uh, and Acts 8, chap uh, chapter 8, verse 1, perfectly describes Paul in his pre-Christian state. Okay, Luke uh, records that recorded that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And so Acts 8 1 says, But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. I mean, this guy was the KGB of the Pharisees, okay? Throwing Christians left and right into prison simply because they were holding uh, house prayer meetings or house, uh, house uh, services, church services. So uh, he was headed to Damascus uh, to do the same thing, okay, until the Lord Jesus met him on the way through a bright shining light. And you can say that the Lord Jesus knocked Paul off his high horse. That's one way to put it. He, he got knocked off his high horse, and his conversion took place around 34 A.D., he took his first missionary journey with Barnabas around 47 A.D. They went through Asia Minor uh, in the region of Galatia. And on his second missionary journey, a couple of years later, this time uh, with Silas, uh, Paul returned through these, these same cities, and he went further northwest into Europe. And for, uh, in the port city of Troas, Paul received in a vision a man from Macedonia calling him to help. So they would cross over into Europe, traveled into the cities of Athens and Corinth in southern Greece. Then they sailed on to Ephesus and Caesarea. And along the way, Paul planted his first church in Europe in the city of Philippi. 
okay? That's basically the background. Now, uh, his first convert in, in Philippi was a woman by the name of Lydia. She was a seller of purple goods. He just happened to find her, godsidentally, as we like to say it around here. He found her among a, a group of women who uh, had gathered for prayer. And both Paul and his co-worker Silas were imprisoned in Philippi for exercising a demon from a fortune-telling slave girl. Okay, that was the major, uh, second major incident there. So losing their means of profit, uh, this girl's owners brought Paul and Silas before the magistrates in Philippi. They had them flogged, and then they jailed them without any, without any trials, okay? And that is a no-no because uh, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen. Now, God miraculously delivered them, and they proclaimed the gospel to the Philippian jailer. Acts 16 captured these events. Acts 16.32 says, They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds. He was baptized at once. This is the jailer. He was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought Paul and Silas up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. One early church father said that this Philip, this uh, uh, Philippi, uh, this jailer was washed. He washed, and he was washed. He washed Paul and Silas from their stripes, and he himself was washed from his sins. And on the very next day, this jailer reported that the magistrates decided to let Paul and Silas go uh, in Acts. 1637, therefore come out now and go in peace, he said. And Paul said to this, to this jailer, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, you let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul was a Roman citizen. So they came and apologized profusely to, to Paul and Silas in uh, Acts 16.39. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city of Philippi. So they went out of the prison and visited, revisited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is an important incident. This is like the third major incident in the city of Philippi uh, in Paul's ministry. Here we see the magistrates secretly ordering the release of Paul and Silas. But Paul insisted that they come to the prison in person to release them. This is in deference to their Roman citizenship. This was pretty much the pattern throughout the whole book of Acts when it came to Paul. So all the Roman officials, including two governors, Felix and Festus, testified to Paul's innocence of any charges against him. Even the Jewish king Agrippa II would later tell Festus in Acts 26, 32, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Okay, But back to what happened in Philippi in Acts 16. Paul was concerned, this is very important, Paul was concerned for the public reputation of his gospel message. And also, no doubt, 
for the good standing of the young church there that he planted and established. So he insisted on being vindicated publicly for the, for the whole town, for the whole city to see, so that the citizens of Philippi would not think that he was a troublemaker and a lawbreaker. This would have been, this would have been some major challenges to the gospel being heard and Philippi for years to come. So Paul wanted to make it clear to everyone, to make it official that a mistake had been made by the magistrates who had flogged and imprisoned a Roman citizen without a formal hearing. So all of that is the background to the letter of, uh, of uh, Philippians. Well, Paul would invoke his privileges as a Roman citizen again late in his life when he appealed to Caesar to be transferred to Rome in Acts 25. The letter to the, to the Philippians was written when he was under house arrest. He was chained to a guard in Herod's Praetorium in Rome around 62 AD. The Praetorium, that word the Praetorium, uh, it was probably quarters, living quarters built for the imperial bodyguard. Um, or the headquarters of, of one of their provincial governors. Paul had been imprisoned at Caesarea, in Caesarea two years before. Well, Paul had been accused of threatening the peace of Rome, okay, uh, of being a Christian ringleader and profaning the Jewish temple. Well, he said guilty as charged on the second accusation of, of him being a leader of the way, which was what uh, Christians were known back then. What we know was that Paul was shipped off to Rome and he was under house arrest there for another two years. He was guarded by the imperial guard. And Acts 28.30 said for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house at his own expense and welcomed all who came to see him. Acts 28.31, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This was a self-financed quarantine. Okay? I've never known anybody who pays, who pays to go to jail. And that's exactly what Paul did. He paid to stay in jail. Self-financed quarantine. Well, the Philippian church got a got wind of this, they heard they were concerned for his well-being, obviously. This was their, their former church planner. So they sent him a gift uh, through Epaphroditus, who risked his own life in coming to Paul, okay? So the church sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul, and he also shared the progress and problems that were happening in the church back home in Philippi. So Paul then sends back this letter to the church, with specific instructions on how they were to move forward in their Christian growth as followers of Christ and leaders in the Christian community. So I read, with all of that as background, I read the letter of Philippians, starting, uh, and we're just going to go through verses 18 today, 1 to 18. Verse 1 in Philippians, Paul and Timothy Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop. Timothy was one of Paul's co-workers. 
and he names them specifically in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, and he, des he described, he didn't, he didn't say that apostle Paul, he said Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with all the over overseers and deacons. The word servants in the Greek means doulos, doulos or slave. It has a, it has a negative connotation, it has a sense of service and humiliation. Okay, These would be prominent themes in this letter because they describe the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus first used that word doulos in his instructions to his disciples in Mark 10, 43 to 45. Mark 10, 43 to 45 says, Whoever wants to be first must be doulos, slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a matter of fact, Paul referred to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ in his greetings and other letters, including Romans 1.1, Titus 1.1, Galatians 1.1. He calls himself a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So in his opening greeting, Paul also mentions overseers and deacons. Overseers uh, are presumably elders or pastors who were charged with the ministry of the word providing spiritual oversight of the congregation consistent with Paul's instructions in Acts 14:23 and 1 Timothy 3:1 and 7 deacons are responsible for matters of practical service body care okay uh, pastoral care examples of deacons are seen in Acts 6:1 to 7 and 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. The fact that uh, the church in Philippi had both elders and deacons is a sign that they had a formal church structure, okay? This was no fly-by-night church plant. They had a formal structure with formal leaders uh, elected and appointed and put in place to serve the flock, okay? Verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a pretty standard early uh, Christian greeting back then. Uh, it is because we have received God's grace, we're justified by faith, that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verses 3 to 11 in Philippians, in Philippians, Paul expresses his gratitude and loving affection for the Philippian church. Then he prays that their love would abound and their holiness would increase. Uh, read with me in uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayer, in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you dearly in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is, what is excellent, 
And so to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, after his initial greetings uh, to uh, the saints there in Philippi, he says, Paul says, his reason for praying with joy for them is because of their partnership in the gospel. The word joy here is the same word as gladness in the Greek, and it appears 19 times, 19 times in this short letter. Paul mentions the word joy because for Paul, it all starts with the gospel. His love for the Philippians and his joy in his prayers for them is rooted in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, Paul provides a succinct definition of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice that. He put first things first. Okay, The gospel takes priority over the non-essential matters like the color of the carpet or the, the kinds of pews you're sitting in. Okay, The gospel is what takes first importance. Paul writes in Philippians 1.4 that he prayed with joy for the saints and the leaders in Philippi. His joy is based, get this, Paul's joy is based not on his current circumstances, which you will see he was chained to a guard all day long. But his joy is based on his partnership with the Philippians in propagating, advancing the gospel. It's not driven by his personal agenda. It's driven by a similar goal to see the gospel advance and spread even as he is in chains. The gospel is why he could sing hymns while he's in jail. The gospel is why 10 years later he could rejoice while in jail again because the gospel was advancing. So the word is translated partnership there in verse 5 is the Greek word where we get the word fellowship, which is koinonia. The Greek word for, for partnership is koinonia. When most Christians think about the word fellowship, they think of, of spending some sort of relational time with other Christians. Okay? But uh, Professor D.A. Carson at Trinity Seminary, he points out that in the first century, this term had some commercial meanings to it. Okay? In the New Testament, this term partnership is often tied to financial matters. Professor Dr. Carson, he said, he goes on to say that the heart of true fellowship goes beyond just punch, having punch and cookies after Sunday school. It is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared mutual vision. And for Paul and the Philippians, that self-sacrificing conformity is for the sake, for the advancement of the gospel. The Philippians have fellowshiped with Paul through prayer, financial sacrifice, and through upholding the gospel. They had a shared vision that began with the gospel. And in verse 6, 
of Paul's opening words to the Philippians. Paul goes on to express his confidence in God who had begun a good work in them. And that work which Paul is referring to was their salvation. This was the first step for these believers, but it was surely not intended to be the last. For the believer, for every believer, the first step is an admission of failure. Okay, that every Christian is by nature an admitted failure. Okay, we admit that we fail to live up to God's standards. Okay, the first step in understanding the gospel is admitting that we have blown it big time. Okay, we sin in what we say, do, or think about ourselves and about others. And even God, I mean, some people are shaking their fists up at God right now, even in the midst of this pandemic. For all sin and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, Romans 6.23. So the work that God, that God does is not something he just begins with. It is the work over a lifetime. As Paul said in verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. The beginning of God's work begins when we put our hope and trust in Jesus Christ to save us. But the work does not end there. Paul says God will be faithful to carry on that work until the day that Jesus Christ returns. And the work God begins at our salvation is not finished until Jesus comes back or at death. As long as one is alive, God is still completing the work that he began. Okay? Dave Harvey, in his book, Rescuing Ambition, he said, In the shadow of failure, we find humbling grace. We learn that we're limited human beings. We discover that God is more interested in who we're becoming than in what we are achieving. We find our definition not in our failures or successes, but in Christ himself. That sounds a lot like the gospel. It sounds a lot like God not only beginning a work, but also being faithful to complete that work. Okay, going on from verses 9 to 11, Paul says, This is my prayer, that, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best, and you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, that we may be filled, you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. The word discern there, the word discern in verse 10, it means to decide what is best. Okay, this means to have a special ability regarding perception that helps you make decisions concerning what is best in extremely difficult, challenging situations like the one we're going through right now. This kind of discernment is not about who you should marry or how much taxes you pay or which college you should attend. That's not what this kind of a discernment is. This kind of discernment is for the kind of decisions you have to make when the best option is not always clear. Okay? The discernment that Paul is praying about here is deciding about two different ministry opportunities and not knowing which one will have the greatest impact. 
And we'll talk about that when he talks about his, his, uh, you know, his extremely uh, challenging uh, scenario, whether to, to, to continue to live or to die and to be with Christ. That's what he's talking about. This is the kind of decision one is faced with when we have to decide if some, uh, to help someone in need is simply enabling that person. You know, tough decision to make. Whether we want to help that person or by helping that person, we're really enabling that person. Okay? Again, it's, it's deciding between two very difficult choices. And what Paul is praying here for these believers is that they would have the discernment to know what is best. What is best? This kind of discernment is incredibly valuable in the life of ministry leaders. The point of this prayer, though, is not discernment for discernment's sake. It is discernment so that the Philippians would grow in love and knowledge. It is interesting that the object of neither this love nor this knowledge is stated. Okay, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Verse 9. Well, what kind of love is this that he's talking about? Is it love for God? Is it love for the lost? What is it? Is it love for, for the other believers? Paul really doesn't say. But in the light of the context, again, if we interpret this in future chapters as we'll get to, you'll see that in light of the context of the entire letter of Philippians, Paul probably means that the Philippians would love one another given his stress on unity, unity throughout this letter. And we'll address that in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, okay? And the content of knowledge there is probably spiritual knowledge of of Christ. The Philippian church started while Paul was in jail, pretty much. So it seems only appropriate that he would write them this letter while he's in the jail. And he goes on to tell them in verses 12 to 20 uh, of chapter 1. He writes these words with a joy, uh, reminiscent of a guy who'd just been uh, flogged, and, and he's singing hymns like we saw 10 years earlier in Acts 16. This time he shares, he shares in verses 12 to 20 why he's able to uh, rejoice while in jail, okay? Even now, while he has experienced the loss of his freedom, the loss of his comfort that so many of us cling to, okay? Uh, Paul rejoices because the gospel is being advanced. He says this in verses 12 to 18. He says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. I'm going to stop there, 12 to, to 14. He encourages us. He encourages the Philippians with the following words. As he awaits trial before the emperor of Rome and his life is at stake, he says, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 12, you know, when I read these words, I, I was immediately reminded of Joseph's words uh, back in Genesis 50 when he tried to comfort his brothers after the death 
of, his, uh, of their father, Jacob. In uh, Genesis 50, 19 to 20, you remember those words? When Joseph said to his brothers, do not fear, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I mean, literally, they thought, uh, they thought he was going to make them slaves and, and kill them and get revenge. He said, no, I'm not standing in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, okay? You're the one who, who put me into this position. But God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many lives, which is exactly what is happening. So how did Paul's imprisonment serve to advance the gospel, even in the midst of his trial? Well, he writes in verse 13, that has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. God has been going even further outside the jail with the gospel, and Paul knows it. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. In verse 14, the emperor's personal bodyguards were chained to Paul on a rotational basis. They took turns. So uh, think about this. They couldn't go anywhere except to listen to this guy share the gospel all day. It didn't matter which guard he was chained to. He was sharing the gospel. Okay? I'm sure that he was unlike any other prisoner that they ever had in the Imperial Guard. I mean, I get tired of hearing myself talk for an hour, much less hearing somebody tell, talk to me for 24 hours. I mean, think about that. It was, and it wasn't just the palace guard who heard the gospel. Paul said, everyone else knows that I'm in chains for Christ. So despite the conditions of his house arrest, Paul was able to preach the gospel freely to everyone who came to see him. This encouraged many other Christians in Rome to share the gospel more boldly than they, that, that they had done before. So that Paul's coming to Rome had in every way worked for the advancement of the gospel, the good news. Now to be real... Not every preacher in Rome at that time, not every preacher in Philippi at that time was operating in a cooperative spirit like we saw in the video, okay, the cooperative program. Okay, they weren't always that way because Paul says in verses 15 to 18, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Apologia, defense. The former proclaim Christ out of self, selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Verse 18, I'm, I'm going to end here with this verse. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, Paul says. So in verse 17, again, that word defense, it's where we get the word apologetics, apologia. It's really about evangelism, which literally means a reasoned defense contend, make a defense for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. The Apostle Paul uses the word to describe his own ministry when in Philippians he states that he is appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. 
In many places, Paul would call out those who are committing sins. But here, he doesn't reveal specific, specific names, okay? He doesn't divulge identities of people whose motives were less than noble, okay? There were those who were clearly antagonistic to Paul. Uh, they may preach generally a sound gospel. Uh, there's nothing here to say that they were preaching a false gospel because Paul would call them out. By name, if he, they were preaching a false gospel. That's not the sign here. They were preaching the gospel, but they were personally at odds. They had, they had a beef. They had a, you know, they had a beef to pick with, with Paul, basically. Okay? They may have looked down on him because of his poor. He didn't have the best speaking abilities. Uh, he was constantly suffering through various ailments. He had weak eyesight. Well, whatever their rationale... They were not motivated by love, but they were motivated by a desire to harm Paul in some way. But Paul, like our Lord Jesus, he's not concerned for his own interests. Again, there's no personal agenda here, okay? He will rejoice as long as the gospel is advancing, okay? He doesn't, ma he doesn't care who's preaching it as long as the gospel is being preached, so let's, let's be honest here for a second. Let's be honest here. There's always going to be some competition among many. In Bible colleges, in seminaries, and even among church leaders, there will be competition. That's what Paul is talking about here. Again, it's not about preaching a false gospel. You can preach the gospel, but with, with wrong motives. That's what Paul is saying. You know, I... I I, thank, I, I really thank the Lord for the time that, that Pastor Mark and I were uh, in Louisville uh, studying at, at Southern Seminary, and we, we both were holding down full-time jobs. And, and uh, I'm glad that we were part of a small cohort here in Chicago, and we would meet on the weekends, and, and we would only go down to Louisville a couple of times a year. And I'm really glad for those times because we didn't have to put up with the, the competition uh, that was going on at, at Southern. There's always a little competition in seminaries, and you, and the seminary students will know what I'm talking about. You're always vying, trying to, uh, trying to earn brownie points, and that happens even among church leaders. Yes. Well, C.S. Lewis, uh, my, my favorite author, he experienced this sort of unhealthy competition himself when he came to faith uh, in 1931. At the time, he was already teaching on the English faculty at Oxford College, okay, Within two years, he had written his first apologetic work called Pilgrim's Regress in 1933. Well, over the next three decades, he would produce a stream of books, okay, including Miracles. These were apologetics works about faith in Christ. Miracles, The Problem of Pain, Abolition of Man, Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, The Great Divorce, and, of course, The Great Narnia, Narnia Chronicles. Despite his literary successes, Lewis was frequently under attack for his decidedly Christian lifestyle. His close friends, even his close Christian brothers, Owen Barfield and J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, did you know that even those close friends of C.S. Lewis would openly disapprove him and criticize him for his evangelistic speaking and writing? I mean, even Dorothy Sayers, his, his other Christian friend, uh, 
would say, I don't know why you respond to these people who write to you. He felt an obligation to to write back to everybody who wrote him. He took the time to write uh, Taylor letters. And Dorothy Sayers go, well, you can write those letters. I don't care about them. (laughs) So if the harsh criticism of these fellow believers was unpleasant, it was mild according, uh, compared to the attacks that he got from colleagues and strangers who did not share uh, his faith. Okay? Lyle Dorsett, who's the curator of the Marion Wade collection at Wheaton College, wrote this. He says, It is with common knowledge that Lewis's Christian books caused so much disapproval that he was more than once passed over for a professorship at Oxford. They wouldn't give him a full professorship at Oxford with the honors going to other men with lesser reputation. It was Magdalene College at Cambridge University that finally honored him with a chair in 1955 and thereby recognized his original and important contributions to English literary history and criticism. So along with his international reputation, his ever-growing royalties and thousands of fans throughout the English-speaking world came increasing alienation So Lyle Dorset asked, did Lewis take comfort in his Lord's warning in the Sermon on the Mount that his disciples would indeed be insulted and persecuted? We do not know. Close quote. Let me ask you this closing question as we close today. Do you find it difficult to to find joy right now, peace and joy uh, in our current circumstances? Staying at home, staying at home, to bend the curve. Do you find increasingly difficult day by day? It's like Groundhog Day. It's like repeating the same day over and over and over again. Do you find it difficult to have joy in our circumstances? And for those who are asking out there, why a good God would allow this pandemic or so many other evils that have beset our world over time, It can be difficult when all you see, and uh, I mean, I was watching the news yesterday even, and all you see is body bags being carried out of hospital emergency rooms. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing body bags and and, and funeral homes in New York or or reporting that they're running out of coffins. And New York City is saying they are running out of burial spaces to bury people in New York City. Where do you find peace and joy to that? Why do we have a horror of the natural process of death? Here's the key question that Lewis would ask. Could it be that it ought not to be this way? Think about it. If death were merely part of the natural process, would it be so horrifying as it is? Is death an intruder on God's good creation that has been caused by Sin, or is death just the other end of life? C.S. Lewis argued that death, death is not natural. It is unnatural. And therefore, its unnaturalness is the source of its sheer horror. Death, folks, ought not to be. It is a clue that there is something going wrong with the world. When death happens, it is a sign to us that this, that a good world has gone wrong, okay? It is no longer Eden. 
It is no longer Narnia. We need only remember that we're not living in the good world. We're no longer living in the Garden of Eden that God originally created, a world in which sin, sickness, death, disasters were unknown. In a very real sense, we are living in a world man created when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and in doing so triggered catastrophic effects that followed and are with us even today. It affected, the fall affected every atom in our bodies and to the uttermost parts of the universe. And one of those is the disruption of nature and the created order, which Paul says has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Plagues, famines, tsunamis, pandemics are some of the results of that disruption. But God was gracious. He was gracious to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in spite of their sin. And he is gracious to us in spite of our sins so that we can have hope even in the worst of times. So, as we continue to go through these difficult, challenging days and nights, especially for those who are affected by COVID. They say the beast, that's what they call it now. The beast comes at night. As you go through these difficult days and nights, let us remind ourselves again that again and again that God is sovereign. He is in control. He loves us. And he is faithful. And that is Paul's message. That is Paul's message uh, to us all uh, in these days as we are uh, sheltered in place. So I will close this with prayer now. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word today to your people. And I pray, I pray the prayer of Paul that our love would may abound more and more in knowledge, knowledge of the saving grace of your son Jesus Christ and depth of insight and discernment, Lord, that we may know to choose what is best and that we may live pure and godly lives, blameless until the day of Christ, that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to your glory, and to your praise. And Lord, until we meet again, we pray that you lead us and guide us uh, by your grace, by your mercy. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.